You're listening to the June 2017 podcast from the Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice at McKinsey & Company. I'm Dennis Swinford, podcast editor. I'm here today with McKinsey's Justin Sanders and Snezana Odo to talk about the growing influence of activist investors. We're especially interested in how the shifting landscape toward passive investing might be contributing to the influence of activists in how trends differ across geographies and what CFOs specifically can do to help companies anticipate and respond to activist attacks. McKinsey as a firm doesn't serve activist investors, so the perspectives you're about to hear are based on our research and our work with corporate clients. With that out of the way, Justin and Snezana, welcome. Hi, Dennis. Thanks for having us on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us, Dennis. The two of you are both part of the Activist Investor Interest Group here at McKinsey, and you've served a number of clients who've engaged with activists or who are anticipating engagement. What are some of the patterns and behaviors and points of interest you've observed in doing this kind of work? I think there's a number of patterns of interest that we've observed as we've looked at and uh, engaged with our corporate clients uh, in this space over the last few years. I think the first is the level of activity, uh, which has been climbing for, for some time, continues to climb, uh, with you know, over 200 campaigns per year being waged against U.S. companies, much higher number globally, that's combined with an amassing of capital that has allowed activists to go after larger and larger companies with average market caps uh, in the tens of billions of dollars now relative to what we'd seen a decade ago where it tended to be more around small and mid-cap type companies. I also think it's worth noting that the uh, type of actions that activists have been getting involved with have become more sophisticated over uh, the last few years. Uh, and starts to reflect more operational and strategic thinking than you may have seen in the early days of activism in the uh, in the early 2000s. Yeah, and maybe another couple of interesting points that we've observed. One is that uh, in some ways it seems that no company is completely safe to the point that Justin made the average market cap of companies under attack has been increasing. Also, as we look at uh, the types of companies that come under attack in terms of performance, it doesn't seem that it's necessarily sort of the, the absolute peer group industry laggards that are the only ones that come under the magnifying glass. Companies who on average exceeded peer group performance in the last two or three years but are seeing a blip and underperforming their peers now certainly come under attack. Another interesting point is that in terms of what companies can expect once an attack begins, we've seen a little bit of a trend in terms of increasingly hostile tactics. In 2010 to 2012, it was about 40% of campaigns that we saw going towards hostile tactics towards the end. In the last few years, that figure has increased slightly. And in terms of ultimate outcome of campaigns, based on the survey that we've done, management seems to win about a quarter of the time, uh, with the rest split between activists winning 40 plus percent of the time and then campaigns settled with some of the demands met in the remainder. And how do we see companies reacting to that? I think you see a few reactions across companies. One is this is a topic that's coming up in more executive offices and more boardrooms as executives and board members ask the question of what happens if an activist attacks us the way they did blank peer within their industry. 
and I think it's worth noting, activism is pretty industry agnostic. There's no industry in the world of publicly traded companies uh, that has not faced some form of an attack. And so most executives in boardrooms have a reference point, and they say, what if that happens to us? What would someone say? There's a pretty big variance in terms of what companies then do in response to that question and how far they go in terms of answering it, uh, addressing concerns uh, that may arise from that sort of inward reflection, uh, or even preparing new strategic uh, actions, new operational actions, or even a proactive defense. There's quite a big range in terms of what companies actually go do with this. But I think the question coming up in, in executive offices and boardrooms is something we are seeing more and more frequently, and it's now the exception where clients aren't thinking about that uh, at some level or another. And at the same time, we've got this rise of passive investing. How does that affect the influence of activists? It would seem you know, that with more investors who can't just do the Wall Street walk and sell their stock, they would want to see stuff happen and actually encourage activism. I think that that is right, uh, Dennis. Um, as Justin was mentioning at the beginning, one of the interesting trends with active, uh, activist investors is that their assets under management and their sort of share of voice out there has certainly increased. And the rise of passive investors in some ways only magnifies that, right? Because if you have uh, one vocal activist investor who develops a perspective, especially if it's a detailed operational perspective on what, what a company should do, you now have more of a set of willing followers who get to magnify beyond what that activist might be holding in the company's stock. And I think to, to that point, there's an important dynamic in how many activists wage their campaigns, even before it becomes public or there's a direct confrontation with management. There's typically some degree of, I'll use the term lobbying, with other large shareholders in a company that is potentially going to go under attack, at least to understand how other shareholders view the company's performance would respond to some of the activists' thinking. In some instances, you even see campaigns that are openly led by both an activist and a passive investor partner in some of the, the form of some of the pension funds in particular. But in our interviews and experience working with corporate clients uh, who either have been attacked by an activist or are under attack, one of the themes that has emerged uh, and that we hear consistently is that by the time the activist comes and presents their plan to management, they also have a point of view on how many shareholders or what portion of the shareholder base generally agrees with their plan or not. And so the shift to passive investors kind of puts more of the, as Snezana said, more of the, the pool of holdings in the hands of professional money managers who activists may have the ability to discuss ideas with or get perspectives from in advance of an attack. Yeah, and that in turn makes it even more important for management and boards to proactively be telling their story, building relationships with those major investors and keeping the communication channels open. Okay. And you also said that activism is industry agnostic. Is it also geography agnostic? Because shareholder rights differ between, you know, the U.S. and Europe and Japan. How does that influence activist investor activity? And do you see that landscape shifting? It's a great and potentially subtle point. 
but an important one. As you said, in the U.S., shareholder rights are actually some of the weakest amongst, uh, or at least when compared to European peers and some Asian peers in terms of the ability to propose shareholder motions, to put up slates of directors, etc. And yet, in spite of that, the U.S. is uh, by far the most active hotbed of activist investor activity. And so those weakened shareholder rights have certainly not deterred activists. In some ways, you might even argue that the weaker shareholder rights is a little bit of a catalyst for activist tactics that you see emerging from the U.S. Um, that are more aggressive and, and, and as Snezana mentioned earlier, uh, are, are increasingly moving towards more hostile behaviors uh, because that's in some ways necessary to be able to motivate the type of actions that shareholders are a little bit more licensed to take in some other countries. Now, that said, you, know, you do see that across Europe, there are dynamics uh, affecting how, how much activism has grown country to country. When you look at the UK and Scandinavia, where shareholder rights are fairly strong and where shareholdings are transparent, you have less of an instance of anonymous shareholder registers, you have less of an instance of uh, anonymous boards. Um, that's, those are markets where activism has picked up at a much greater clip than what you see in Germany or Switzerland or parts of Central Europe where dynamics such as anonymous shareholder registers, large holdings from employee pension plans, and some structural elements like that make activists approach with a little bit more caution uh, because they don't necessarily have the same transparency around how shareholders may vote or move the way they do in uh, the UK, in Scandinavian markets, and certainly in the United States. How much that's going to drive a change in shareholder rights in American markets, I think is a topic for debate, and not one that we know the answer to, but certainly it has not dissuaded activism in the US, nor has the presence of stronger shareholder rights kept activism fully at bay in European markets where we do see, uh, we do see campaigns growing in both number and size. And Justin, any thought on trends outside the US and Europe? I know you guys made a quick pit stop over to Japan as part of the interest group. Anything that comes to mind from beyond the two sides of the Atlantic? Yeah, absolutely. I think in, in Asia, you see still a more nascent market in the sense that the volume of campaigns and therefore the observable patterns of what activists are pursuing vary more. That said, you do see an active market for activism in Japan and with certain regulatory changes uh, coming to the table uh, that uh, enable more shareholder rights and, and, and enable more of an activist approach. Um, I think you, you could very easily argue that you'd, you'd see a pickup in volume in the coming years um, in the Japanese market. In China, you've seen more of an ebb and flow to activist activity uh, with a couple of patterns emerging. Early, as more and more Chinese companies uh, went public and there were multiple scandals around fraudulent companies, there were targeted activist funds whose strategies went after fraud and effectively short-sold stocks and, and tried to expose fraud. That has diminished significantly over the last couple of years. 
And you're starting to see a market in China for campaigns that are a little bit more traditional in terms of looking for companies that are underperforming or can be improved, or where there are corporate transactions, M&A and divestments uh, that could benefit shareholders, but not at a volume that's let you establish a significant pattern. But I think it's fair to say that the market exists and is just in an early stage and, and, and is starting to mature. Some of the interesting campaigns from Asia that have, that have emerged have, have come from Korea, which historically has been a challenging place for an activist to attack because of the structure by which both employees uh, who, uh, who have holdings in pension programs uh, approach their governance processes, and also with a, a country that is a little bit more protective of its businesses, uh, both in terms of cross-memberships on boards uh, and just the dynamic by which business operates there. I think some of the Hallmark campaigns you've seen recently, if you look at the pattern of activity, you'd argue it's, it's still a nascent market relative to Europe or relative to the U.S., but where activists are certainly looking at opportunities uh, and, and not shying away to the degree that they may have used to. Let's shift direction a little bit here. The strategies that activists employ to add value seem to range from you know, the ones that are apparently very simple and high level, like you lever up and then pay a dividend, um, to corporate strategy, you know, what to sell from the portfolio, even to business unit strategy and efficiency benchmarking. Do we see any trends here? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Dennis. I think we've looked across sectors, and again, this varies a little bit across sectors, but about 20% of campaigns have some sort of financial demand probably a lot of them in line with the lever up and pay a dividend characterization of it. Another 20-ish percent plus are around specific demands on M&A and spinning off parts of the business. And then the rest tend to be kind of more blanket demands for changes in governance, often with the aim of getting board membership as a means of driving through more fundamental operational or strategic changes. And at least I primarily serve healthcare clients, and in the healthcare sector, that piece has been increasing, or that proportion of activist demands has been increasing recently. Also, just anecdotally, it feels like in the last few years, some of the activist presentations that we've seen go into a lot more depth, a lot more granularity, with a lot more research behind them, informing the activist perspective on what exactly they think they, the company should change operationally or, it's an, or in its strategic direction. Justin, I don't know if you agree with my, uh, my anecdotal observation there, but that's certainly what it feels like in the last few years. Yeah, I, I do agree with the observation, and I think we kind of see both some data and some structural dynamics in the market that support that. When we look at the volume of just total demands on top of what Cezana was mentioning around the type of campaigns that activists are waging, there has been a significant increase in the percent of demands that touch on some explicitly strategic or operational topic that suggests that the, uh, the demands are becoming more sophisticated or more operationally linked. I think the other thing we're seeing is if you look back to earlier days of activism, and by earlier days I'm referring to the early and mid-2000s, a lot of activism extended from a couple different investment strategies and larger investment funds event-driven strategies, which focus on how do you create value or capture value for your investors around corporate events, such as acquisitions or divestments, recapitalizations. You see some of the activists who emerged from those event-driven strategies initially focused very much on M&A, divestment, corporate structure-oriented 
campaigns. That was their thesis. It, it emerged from the way they'd invested as non-activists. On the other side, there's a number of investors who come from background of value investment funds who are building out a viewpoint on the core operational drivers of a business, looking at peers, understanding who outperforms and underperforms, and whose style of activism extended from picking stocks based on whether a company was fairly valued versus its performance to identifying companies whose performance had been higher or should be higher and agitating for those types of activities. Initially, those were two fairly separate camps of activism where you'd see one type of investor follow one type of investing campaign and another type of investor follow the other. I think you're seeing more of a merging of that now as activism itself has become a strategy and activists are observing what others have done successfully or what they have failed to do and using that to motivate the breadth of levers that they'll look to pull at a company when they launch a campaign. And to that latter point of who the activists are and what their modus operandi is, again, sort of with more data points over the last years, we observed that a set of top 15 activists account for the majority of campaigns against, at least in the U.S., the large cap companies that are affected. And many of them at this point have a little bit of a track record in terms of what's their style of engaging and what is the type of demand that they tend to make, what's the amount of research and depth that they go into when coming up with the recommendations that they put forward. So what is the role of the CFO then in helping the CEO and the board and the top team to avoid and respond to and anticipate activist intervention? I think there's a few roles that the CFO should take in supporting their CEO and their board, both in anticipating, preparing for, and responding to activist intervention. In terms of anticipating, the most important thing a CFO can do is to ensure that the CEO and the board at any point in time have an unvarnished view on the value creation sources for the company, how the company is performing relative to its peers, both in the capital markets, but also from operational dimensions, and frankly, also from capital structure dimensions, so that they can understand when an investor evaluates their company relative to the peers in their industry, what are the themes, trends, differences, gaps that an investor might pick up on and then see as a thread that they should pull in coming up with the idea for a campaign. So that unvarnished view on sources of value creation, both what they've been historically, but also what they would look like going forward, is a very important role and one that the CFO is uniquely positioned to be able to play on an executive team. The second is thinking about going beyond anticipating the potential risk of an activist attack or activist intervention and saying, how do we think about preparing for, or in, in, in an even better situation, addressing issues that an activist might look at in advance. And, and so in those instances, the CFO can play a valuable role of assembling you know, what we would refer to as a red team to actively think about if this is the area where the activist would attack the company, what are the changes, whether they're operational, whether they're strategic, whether they're related to capital structure and financial measures that the company could take that would both create value for shareholders, but also help position them uh, more competitively relative to peers from both an operational and a capital markets point of view. The last role that the CFO plays is in the active engagement and, uh, and response to an activist intervention. And the CFO can play everything from a heavily content-driven role 
trying to determine what demands from an activist will create value for shareholders versus what destroy value or what are value neutral may you know, redistribute cash in the meantime. So at minimum, a CFO can play the role of understanding the answers to those questions. In some cases, the CFO is the best positioned to engage with an activist and be able to have constructive dialogue around the activist demands, but remain kind of a step removed from the board or the chief executive. It will largely depend on the campaign, the nature of the demands, the dynamic of the activist that is engaging the company, but having a very active role in thinking through what of the responses to an activist intervention will and will not create shareholder value is a pivotal role that the CFO can play. So this red team approach that you're talking about, that's the activist role play that you wrote about in your recent article? Exactly. And how does that help confront the unconscious biases that even a CFO who's well-grounded in data might have toward one move or the other? I think paired with that, there's two elements that make this approach particularly effective, especially when you're confronting uh, unconscious or frankly conscious biases across a management team. One is to be rigorously fact-based around metrics that an investor would observe and use to benchmark company performance and compare their success or their potential for returns with. The second is to be transparent about the peer group that an investor may use for evaluating a company. One of the biggest unconscious biases we see are when management teams over time have developed a view on the peers that are most comparable from a cost structure point of view, from a margin structure point of view, in terms of their channels or route to market, or other operational topics or themes, and have therefore departed from the types of businesses that an investor would compare their performance against and develop blind spots. And so by being both rigorously fact-based and making sure that the comparison to peers and the benchmarking conducted takes into account an investor perspective, helps management teams look at their business in the type of objective way that an investor might. Okay. Thank you, Snezana and Justin. It's been very interesting, and thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis.